I need someone killed by a shark. And my friend was like, I'll be killed by a shark. And I'm like, wonderful, you're now dead. Hello, I'm Jim Fox, and welcome to the Lumen Innovation Podcast, where we shine a light on innovation, creativity, entrepreneurship, and the creative people who make our world a better and more interesting place to live. Our guest today is Kate Sanger. Hello, Kate. Hello. I got to ask, is it Kate or Catherine? Uh, Catherine for things that I publish, but Kate when I actually talk to people. Okay. <laughs> Kate it is. Kate it is. Kate's work has been featured in various publications such as Spaceports <laughs> and Spider Silk, yes. Black Petals, Lost in the Dark, Revolution SF, and many more. She's a writer for various nonfiction websites as well. Kate is a member of the Science Fiction Poetry Association, SFWA, HWA, the Houston Writers Guild, and Gulf Coast Poets. Kate is, has owned and operated a small press called From the Asylum Books and Press. She has taught English for over 10 years at various online community and technical schools. And I guess all of that is a really long way of saying we have got a lot to learn from you. <laughs> Before we get started, uh, Kate, tell the listeners where we're at. Where are we recording this at today? We are at the Helen Hall Library, actually, which is awesome because they have this theater that anybody can sign up and use. And, and they foolishly let you do that. So. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I thought it'd be kind of uh, appropriate uh, talking about writing and and books to do so in a house of books. Here we are at the Helen Hall Library in League City, Texas. League City is about halfway between Houston and Galveston, down near the coast of uh, the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, so if I were to go out to, into the lobby of the library here and, and start asking people, rattle off some authors, we might get names like J.K. Rowling, uh, Stephen King, Ernest Hemingway, some of those well-known names. But I'm hoping that today's uh, talk will kind of broaden that list a little bit. I'm reminded of a, a, a book that's been out several years now called The Millionaire Next Door. And I'm hoping that perhaps we can do something that will inspire maybe a book called The Author Next Door. So uh, maybe you can help uh, spread some light on, you know, what it's like to be a local author. You know, there's, there's bound to be a lot of authors kind of secretively hidden in the houses next door to us in the neighborhoods. Talk about that a little bit. Well, actually, the library is a great place to meet them, funnily enough. Um, and when you decide to get your book out there, the library is a great place to come. Um, they have, especially this library, but I know all libraries, they have all sorts of writing events where they have local authors come in. Um, it, they're free events, but of course the authors are kind enough to bring copies of their books that they will sign and sell to you if you're interested. Um, but it's a great place to find out about your local authors, to meet them, to make contacts with them, because of course networking is what everything is about. Um, and just in general, if you're trying to get a book out there, your local library is a great place to do it. They always are doing things with local authors. So Yeah, it's amazing that <laughs> if you start looking for and asking around how many local authors there are. Yeah. And there are accountants, there are engineers, they're, you know, they work at McDonald's, you know, it's whatever job they have to do to pay the bills. In the evenings, they're doing a lot of writing, just more or less as a hobby. But perhaps we can uh, shine some light on how to turn that hobby into something a bit more serious or maybe make a little bit of revenue or at the very <laughs> least get the pride of knowing that you've got something published. Uh, talk about something that you're currently working on or maybe more recently have worked on. Uh, right now, actually, I and this is actually something I wanted to talk about, was getting ideas or inspiration. And... That's really probably the most important part is to keep the writing process going because you can't get published if you don't write it. You know, and it's so hard to get that start going. So you want to make sure that you're finding ideas and inspiration everywhere you go. And I was on Facebook, of course, and someone put up, uh, I think it's Blue Apron or something like that, where they have, you know, they send you food. And I thought, wouldn't it be funny if, like, necromancers had a box like Blue Apron that would show up at their houses? Wow. And what if someone had a complaint about I their box? So that's actually what I'm I working on I think you have a business right plan. Now. You have a business plan. Um, that's good. So, but that's the thing is you want to kind of see things that are going on around you and, and play with them in your mind. And maybe you won't go necromancer. That's, <laughs> that's probably me. But yeah, that's, that's a great thing to, to kind of get started because when you figure out what you want to write, that's how you can start figuring out where to put it. Um, the, first th the first thing I ever got professionally published was actually a piece of nonfiction. Okay. And it was in a now defunct Houston Chronicle supplement. 
Uh, and what happened was my father got a chance to sail on the Alyssa down in Galveston. Yes, the, I've been the on that boat. Ship. Yeah. yeah. And so we got a chance to sail on it. And I was, my I had a 10 or 11 month old son at the time. And, you know, it, we get out into the middle of the, the ocean there, and they said, Squall is coming. We're going to sit here. We don't know how long we'll be here. Could be an hour. Could be five hours. We'll figure it out. So I wrote something about the oh, experience well that, that's and, neat. and said, here you go. This is a local interest piece, and they paid me some money for it. Uh, <laughs> Very cool. So, that, that's, so a, that's a good example of more or less just winging it and making use yeah. of your, your spare time. What are some other things that kind of everyday people uh, could could do it's not likely that a that a kind of an average joe uh, could sit around and, and publish a 400 page novel on their first try but what are some things to do to get started to uh, you know, as a as a new aspiring writer um, one thing that's great is contests yes um, i cannot now so and this is where it gets kind of interesting you have to decide if you're willing to pay to enter contests um, they are a great chance to get started uh, rwa which is the romance writers group um, they have awesome contests. I've actually judged some of them. The local one, the Emily contest. And you have to pay to enter them. But some of the things you get in res return, like for the Emily contest, you pay, but you get feedback from three different judges That's good. on your entire good manuscript. Yeah. You get the chance at professionals reading your work, like multiple published authors. Um, and I don't remember if the Emily does it, but many of the RWA ones do also give publishing contracts as the prizes. So you're saying, you know, you look at it and you go, $25. But that's $25 well spent if you're getting all this feedback. Yeah, I'm kind of just real time here thinking of an analogy for that. If you want to get good at basketball, you go to basketball practice. You go to basketball camps in the summer and pay a few hundred dollars for that. So same thing is you're, you're paying for expertise to come in and kind of show you what you're maybe not doing as well as you might be in the future. And kind of guide you around. That's yeah, and there are, you know, talking about the local aspect, there are local groups um, like Barrier Writers League down here in, in the Galveston-Houston area, um, but every area is going to have <laughs> local writing groups. You can't keep writers away from each other, and most of them will have their little local, I know Baltimore does one because they have a writing convention, so they have contests there, um, and it's just, it's a chance to to start getting your name out there because when you can say, I won this, people are going to pay a little more attention to you. Yeah, um, absolutely. So that, that is a great way to get started. They often aren't going to give you a lot of money, uh, but then there are some that offer publication. Um, and I can't even, I'm so horrible. I'm like, uh, I don't know which one it was that I entered, but I entered this one poetry one. So is that, are those, <laughs> um, are those things kind of intimidating for, let's, let's say that there's someone out there who is interested in writing but has never really written anything uh, but they want to learn. Is that an intimidating way to go? Is, should they do that kind of right out of the gates? Or, or how should they do that? I would say it's a good way to go out of the gate because the first thing you need to accept as a writer is that you will be rejected. Okay. You yes. are going to so. build, nowadays it's electronic. If you really want, you can print them out and save them. Um, people used to keep files to keep track of how many rejections they had because that, that is of part honor. of the process. <laughs> yeah, it really yeah. is. Um, and Z Frank, who actually has a channel up on YouTube, has a great thing on like failure and rejection when he talks about he was in college with this guy who applied to all these business schools. And every time he got a rejection letter, he posted it on the wall because it showed he was trying. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. getting those rejections is not a bad thing, um, especially you know when it comes to contests because it's showing you. And a lot of the times you'll find out, like, did you get honorable mention? Okay, you didn't win anything, but that honorable mention means you beat out a lot of people. <laughs> you were you were close to the top. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of I'm sure in their heart, almost everyone is a writer of some sort. I mean, you know, jotting down quick poetry, or or maybe a, kind of dreaming up a short story. How did you get started on that? What what where was your genesis of of this? And we talked a little bit about this yeah. before we turned on the record <laughs> button here. So. Uh, when I was eight, I wrote a, a short, well, it was a children's book, really, um, and that was about a man stealing teddy bears, and the IRS comes calling to get their cut, uh, and then I wrote what is horrible, horrible novel when I was 12 or 13. I finished it, and um, that one has never seen the light of day since I, I've looked at it and wanted to cringe and cry, and... That will never, ever be revived. Never, that just never again, needs huh? to be burned somewhere and ignored. 
Um, but, you know, some people do that. Some people don't. I know a poet who he's been in the Houston Poetry Fest, which is pretty big, especially in the area. Um, and he started because he saw the Bay Area Writers League critique group and went, this stuff sounds really good. I'd like to do this. And he had retired from working at one of the plants and he started writing poetry. Very cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, poetry is, is uh, I, I was about to say it's the easiest way to get in, but, but, that, but that's probably, <laughs> that's, that's surely not correct. No. <laughs> uh, it is hard to do that well, but maybe it's easy enough to get in and just kind of get in the game, even if it's not, not good at first. But, you know, you kind of jot down a few lines that almost rhyme and, and kind of go from there, perhaps. Yeah, I'm like, ah. Well, and what's sad is one of the biggest problems with poetry is even if you're doing it really well, you will probably never really earn money from it. Yes. Um, There are very few places that publish it, and at professional rates, uh, maybe, I don't know, 10 real places. I Uh, mean, there's more than that, but just. I'm reminded of uh, Steve Martin was on the David Letterman show several years ago, and uh, of course, Steve Martin is n- well known for his comedy, but he's a little less known for being an excellent musician. Uh, and he was on David Letterman, and he came out in his joking way, and he said, I, I am now this week, uh, true fact, I am the number one selling bluegrass artist in the country. He had a new bluegrass album out. And the punchline was, that means I sold three copies. Uh, so so poetry is probably about the same way. It's There's not a huge market for it, even if you totally capture the market. Yeah, and I mean, there are places to publish it, no question. It's just most of them are going to pay very little, if anything. A lot of, you know, five and ten honorarium is kind of a, a good expectation for your poetry. So that's kind of painful because while it feels faster than writing, it still has to go through all the steps in the process. Sure. So you might spend a couple of days writing a poem and then here's your $5. Congratulations. Uh, So you have to really love poetry to write poetry. Well, so but but like much of um, the writing that could be done by the writer next door, there may not be any grand desire to make a million dollars off of it. It might be just purely the satisfaction of doing the piece, right? So, and there's tons of um, genres to do that poetry we've mentioned, but but even local history. Uh, I, I've seen on various uh, store shelves around here in the Clear Lake area, uh, small little books, almost pamphlets of the history of Kima, the history of Seabrook. And someone has taken the time to write those books and get them published. And, and maybe they're making a few dollars off of them, but I, I suspect that they didn't do those with the intent of making money. They probably did them because they're passionate about their local history and, and the area. Uh, another thing is uh, photography collections. Like, let's say that if you're if you like to travel, you could you know put some uh, photography books together, write some stories, get those published to to maybe give your grandkids as Christmas gifts. So you're not really trying to capture a big market; you're just trying to get some books out, written and published. Anything else along those lines that you can think of uh, reasons non-financially why a person might <laughs> want to different genres? Uh, it really a lot of the times it is the satisfaction. Local authors who write about history, um, they might not make a lot of money, but they can actually rack up halfway decent sales by doing things at the library, going, if you're lucky enough to have local independent bookstores, mm-hmm. going to them, they will advertise you, you will advertise them, everyone benefits. Yes. Um, yes. You can even go to like half price books locally, they will host readings and signings. So a lot of the times if you want to write local history, it's asking, like that's, that's <laughs> there's a British show uh, from the 70s and one of the, the characters has a line that I've really adopted, which is the, if you don't ask, you don't get. True. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're writing your book and you want to be successful, even if to you success is selling 50 copies of your book. That's not a bad start for anyone. Um, so you need to go around and start asking people. Um, like the little pamphlets you're talking about, go to the little stores in the towns, you would be surprised. Like with Kima, they get a lot of tourists. They do, yes. Yeah, you might yeah. be able to sell more than you think <laughs> by putting it up in a little independently owned store. Yeah, another uh, thing I was thinking of earlier when I was preparing for this is uh, there's niche markets. You know, uh, let's say you have, oh, I don't know, you could pick any hobby and just super zoom in on that hobby of uh, quilts made out of T-shirts or something. You know, something something super hyper local, hyper specific that there's a market of 54, but you're just super passionate about it. A person could go write a book about that, you know, so. Definitely. Nonfiction um, actually outsells fiction. 
every time. Yeah. Uh, if you think about it, go into the Barnes and Noble and take a look around and how much floor space is there for fiction versus nonfiction? Nonfiction is what does it. Um, so yeah, and there's there's other places to build a name in those before, especially thinking crafts. Um, there's websites where you can sell patterns, not just Etsy, but there's actually Craftsy mm -hmm. and Ravelry and a bunch of others where you can put your patterns up, grow a following, and then come out with a book. And so it's all about building the brand, right? Yeah. And yeah. so being able to do that helps. And uh, another place you can write for that actually pays you, which is awesome, um, is hub pages. And I think I mentioned that possibly uh, a little while ago. Yeah. The nice thing about them is they it's not that they so much support you, but if you write something good, you can now submit it to one of their their branch sites. And if they like it, they'll do things like make it hub of the day and they'll tweet it and put it on Social Facebook media. and yes. get it out there for you. And the more they get it out there, the more people are going to come look at it, the more page views, the more money you get. Um, and I don't make a whole lot off of it. I won't pretend I do, but I haven't put anything new up for at least a year and a half, and I don't have that much up there right now, and I'll still get 250 a month for doing wow. nothing. That's, <laughs> that's pretty darn good, yeah. You know, it at least pays for a coffee habit. So <laughs> Yeah, and I, I can imagine also the very first time you got a check for even 10 or 15 bucks, you're super pumped that day, right? You're, you're excited yeah. to check the mail and get 10 bucks in the, for something you've done more or less as a passion. Yeah, and especially like with this, you know, it's, it's stuff you put up and you know, I, like I said, I haven't touched most of it. For most of the articles are longer, or much older than a year and a half. But you know, they they keep paying as long as people keep looking. That's true. So Let's talk a little <laughs> bit about actual the the actual process of writing a book. Uh, so you, I th from what I've seen of your uh, your background, you do a lot of science fiction, but you also do a little bit of uh, nonfiction as well, correct? Mm -hmm. How do you? Um, how do you go about that? How, what is the what is the recipe of how to write a book? And I, I realize that's a oversimplified question, but try to give the listeners an idea of the process, how that how that occurs. Well, obviously, the first thing is the idea, which it can be something you're passionate about or something that you know a large group is passionate about. Um, and that, that really, you know, if you're the only one who loves it, you're probably not going to have a huge following, but you'd also be really surprised, um, especially like I was saying, like with those websites, go look and see what's out there about it, and you might be really surprised to find out there is a market. You just have to, you know, it's the branding. Find out who's going to have it. Make sure you advertise it to them. Um, and once you get that idea, it's one of the first things to do is to find out what is already out there with it. Um, you found those websites where people are interested. Well, now go hit up Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Find out what's already been published. Um, because if you know what people are buying, you know kind of where to direct your your focus. You know, Do you want to do something completely different? Is, do you think that's what the market needs? Do they need something more updated on that topic? Um, a lot of what I do, I write about special needs a lot. Okay. And so... Yeah. Uh, I've been thinking about writing certain things about advocacy and ways to communicate better with school districts. Um, so, so this is still, f you know, it's still fluid. Yeah, sure. It's yeah. just like any idea. So let's say that you, uh, I'm sure you've got a thousand projects going on, but let's just <laughs> pretend for the purpose of this discussion that now you're going to decide to make that that project your primary goal for the next few weeks or a few mm -hmm. months. How do you go about doing that? How do you do you? Uh, do you just start writing a book with really no form or fashion and then you kind of fine tune it later? Do you make an outline now and then kind of build the book around the outline? How, how does that process go? So for nonfiction, what's really best, uh, especially if you're looking at getting it published, and even if you're writing fiction, the first thing to do, like I said, is checking the market. Okay. Um, you always want to know what's out there and what it is you're going to be fighting against. Uh, and you also want to be able to, if you're trying to sell it, what is it like and what is it not like? Um, you know, you always see the, like J.K. Rowling meets whoever. Um, and so that's, you want to be able to have that kind of idea of how you're going to market it before you even start writing it. Okay, so and that's that's kind of counterintuitive for someone who wants. <laughs> uh, another analogy I, I use regularly is if someone just loves to cook and make meals, then the logical step is to open a restaurant. But at that point, they're no longer a cook, they're a business person. Right, so when you're talking about the fir first thing to think about is marketing, a writer doesn't want to think about marketing. They want to think about writing. But yeah, it's just it is just like being you know I want to open a restaurant. Okay, restaurants fail, books fail. How are you going to make sure you're not one of those people who fail? And how are you going to make sure that you actually finish it? 
Okay. You know, a lot of yeah. people are like, I want to open a restaurant, and the, here's a great spot. Oh, someday I'll do that. And that's what happens with people who want to write books. You know, I have this awesome idea, and someday. And so that's why you start doing your research before anything else, because it's going to either make you confident or scare you off. So, like, if you're doing, <laughs> let's say you, you do uh, science fiction about, I don't know, futuristic space travel with colonies on Mars or something, how do you research that? What is the process to go about building that in your head so then, then you can move the ideas from your head onto paper? How, how does that actual creative process occur? Um, so with fiction, I'd do it a little different. And there's two types of writers when it comes to fiction. Um, you have the, the plotters and the pantsers. And some people call them different things. It's all the same idea. And the plotters are the ones who sit down, and they're going to make their lists. They're going to figure out their chapters. They're going to do everything that they do ahead of time, whereas the pantsers are the seat of the pants. Yeah. So they're just going to sit down and start writing. Uh, personally, I'm kind of in the middle normally. If it's going to be a longer piece like a novel, I'll make sure that I have a basic idea of beginning, middle, and end. Okay. Not saying that that's actually going to hold up because, you know, plans, engagement with the enemy, fail. <laughs> so well, I don't you, you may have to go back and revisit those. You, you throw those terms around and you're very familiar with them, but our audience may not be. So, so keep going to your story and we'll revisit those terms. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so for me, what I do, like I said, I'll, I'll come up with the beginning, middle, end. Um, if it's going to be something really intricate, like hard science fiction, what you're talking about, you know, if I was going to write about a space station that has these very particular things, um, we're lucky. We live <laughs> in the Houston area. I can find astronauts and yes. people who work at the Space Center to answer my questions. Yeah, there we go. Uh, but sometimes you, you aren't that lucky, in which case you have to actually do the research. Um, if you're doing something a little more free-flowing that's not as research-based, then you can get started a little more easily. A but person no. like me, I, w I would probably get so wrapped up in the research I would forget to read the book. Or, or to <laughs> write the book, rather. I'd forget to write the book because I, I enjoy going reading the backstory and all that. But, but That yeah. is a danger, too. Um, and one of the, the important things which I've actually written down as something I wanted to bring up is okay. when you're doing the research like that, and it, it sounds really weird, I guess. Uh, you do not want to use more than 10% of your research in your book. Uh, go on about that. What do you <laughs> because mean? Because what happens is if you, let's say you find out awesome things about a sta space station, you know everything about it now. You can tell me, you know, you, you talk to your food scientist so you know what's up there. You talk to this person. You have all of this stuff. If you put all of that in the book, you're going to bore your reader because oh, okay. so, you're going to have yeah. these huge info dumps where you're just like and then the way this works is and I, I had a writer friend who was an engineer and at one point in his fantasy novel he went for almost a page about how these wheels worked and what the fulcrum was here and what the and the reader just wants to know there's a wheel right it's yeah. like this this is not it's not hard science fiction people yeah. don't need to understand that this is fantasy where people are moving wagons to get in a war the war is the focus here okay um, yeah. so the research that's why you don't want to include that much of it you want to use that to inform you so if you're going to write about a space station Something might not, you know, you're like, well, we have these huge rooms. Well, if it's more like a submarine, maybe you <laughs> don't have, you know. Uh, so talk about um, a character development. So let's say that you come up with uh, uh, an astronaut who's going to Mars to the colony. How do, you, how do you build empathy for that character? How do you get the reader to give a damn, more or less? <laughs> uh, so there is, there is a trick that you should not use, but it works every time, which is to give them a dog. Uh, <laughs> okay. There's there's actually an awesome book on screenwriting, uh, and it's it's and I'm blanking on it, which I am completely ashamed of. But it has to do with uh, something with a cat in the title. I, I, I have heard of, of a it. yeah. Well, I've, I've, you you reminded me of another uh, another author that I know told me about a save the cat moment. No matter how yes. the, how bad the character is, you make them do something cool at first. And that way the, the people kind of think, well, he's not such a horrible person after all. He saved the cat out of the tree. How bad could he be? Right. And that's yeah. that. I think that might be close to the title of the, the book. But uh, And that's the idea is giving people dogs, give them empathy. Uh, and bringing up movies for it, like John Wick. Okay. He's fighting because of his dog. Oh, man, we all love him now. Um, in Riddick, Chronicles of Riddick, he gets a dog to become more human. So <laughs> I don't recommend doing it, but that's, that's the kind of thing you want to look at when you're reading. What is it that makes, your, makes characters human? Um, the best thing to do is give them goals and make sure there's obstacles to reach the goals. Okay. 
Um, that's, that, I mean, that is your basic plot for anything. Someone has to want something, and something has to keep them from getting it. So that when you said that, it, 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 in my the hell that is my head, I, uh, I, uh, I pulled up an image just instantly in my head of the game Frogger without any cars. <laughs> right. right. I said, that's no fun. No one cares about Frogger when there's no cars, right? Yeah, if you can so you, do it. you got to give him a goal, and then a reason why it's maybe impossible to do that goal or very difficult to do, and that's the cars in the Frogger game. So. So yeah. that, that makes sense. You know, give him a goal and give him a, a reason why that is not totally intuitively easy. And in, in longer works, and I, I hate this, I have ruined books for many people because of this. Uh, but so what you'll see and what you, you do, or you want to do, I should say, you'll see the first thing that happens in most books is there is a challenge of some form. Okay. Yeah. The main character is either going to succeed or fail. If they fail, you might have now given them a greater motivation in which case now they have to do this for another reason, or you've now broken them if they fail and they don't want to continue, so they need that push to continue. And if they succeed, now are their stakes raised because they've shown they can succeed? And so, and so using that initial challenge is a really good way to, first of all, show who your character is, give them a response to failure or success, and build them in the eyes of the reader. Yeah, I can see where, depending on how that is done, you could build sympathy for the loser. Yeah, <laughs> or, yeah. Or, <laughs> or, or, you know, pat him on the back, kind of, if he went out and, and knocked out the challenge. So, yeah, I can see where that would work. So uh, it's a really good way to get people to, to get into the character really early on. Um, and I apologize to everyone who I've ruined books for because <laughs> like, I tell people that and then they read a book and they're like, oh man, look at this just happened. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm sorry, but. <laughs> so, it's, uh, so that's standard. a little bit of how to build a character that's interesting. How about, how do you build a, a story that is interesting to the reader? Because I think we could all imagine, um, you know, writing a story about going to the grocery store and buying a watermelon and walking home, and that's a boring story. But someone who's a good writer could take that same story and turn it into something interesting. How, what are some of the tricks on that? Um, it really comes back to the character development. Most of the time, people, unless you're talking hard science fiction, which is completely different, um, and, and there are other fields for that, but most of the time, what the, what's going to keep a reader reading is the character. Uh, and it's going to be the question of will they succeed or fail. Going to a store, buying a watermelon, nothing. Okay, now let's say that, and I, I go dark automatically because <laughs> I do write a lot of horror and, and other things in that vein. Uh, let's say that we are currently under attack by, <laughs> we'll, we'll say North Korea. and uh, Very timely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? And, and so you need to go get that watermelon because you need... The, the water part of the watermelon because your your family is dying uh. and you, you have no clean water, but you know the watermelon is going to provide you with a little more life. And so you're trying to get to the store knowing that there's going to be all of these obstacles. There's going to be people trying to kill you. There's going to be the enemy. there's And suddenly you're going, okay, it's is not this person going to succeed anyway. or fail? Yeah, and yeah. What are the stakes? That's one of the best things to do is constantly raise the stakes. Okay. Give us a, uh, uh, an example of a book or a movie that most people know, Harry Potter or Jurassic <laughs> Park or something, where you can point out an example of doing that in like a story. Jurassic book. Park is great, you know, yeah. because it does, uh, and pretty much, I won't, I won't talk about the middle one, but, <laughs> you know, the first and the last Jurassic Parks are great for it because they personalize the stakes. You have a park full of people okay, they're people, we don't know anything about them. If they live or they die, we're not really going to care. But And this is where the character is the, so important. We have kids yeah. who are in danger, and we've connected with those kids. We've seen, Even if they were adults, it would be fine. you know. But we've connected with these people, and we know that they're there trying to succeed. Um, the woman who's you know, there with her child, <laughs> the, you know, she wants to save her kid, she also, you know, this has been a personal failure for her now. So she has this dual motivation. And the worse it gets, the more motivated she's going to be to fix it. Because, okay, she's worried about the people in the park dying. That's fair. You know, all of the, the campers who are there. You know. But now she also has her daughter, stakes raised. Her professional career, stakes raised. And what's going to happen if this gets out into the rest of the world? big stakes. Yeah, okay. So you just keep showing people that this, and that's, that's actually a trick too, is 
you just keep making it meaner and meaner. Like the meaner <laughs> you can be to your character, the better that it is. <laughs> every page matters, or there are stakes at every at every page, every turn of the page. Yeah. Do you find it um, uh, more difficult to write a fiction character who's a woman or a guy? Is that is that even <laughs> a factor? Is that is that do you find a difference in that? Not really, um, and hopefully. And I think, like, so the feminist comes out here. As long as you consider everyone people, then you're going to be okay. Most people are going to pretty much have the same motivations. A guy is not going to want his child to die any more than a woman is going to want her child to die. Um, it doesn't matter what gender you are writing about, um, where on the spectrum of gender or sexual orientation you're writing about. People pretty much have the same dreams. You want to find love doesn't matter who you are. Yeah. That motivation is going to be true. Um, getting the language correct and things like that can be a problem, but that's why you want to have your beta readers uh, who yes. will check out what you write. Go to critique groups. Have someone check out what you write and see if it sounds natural. But that's not even just male-female. That's parts of the country. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and there's there's all kinds of colloquialisms. I, I remember a book by Bill Bryson I wrote several, uh, read several years ago that uh, he's a well-published uh professional writer he's written for newspapers and books and he's got a couple degrees in in various english type things and in one of his books he he mentioned traveling to the state of georgia and uh, <laughs> he's like here i am with several degrees in english i know this language and i can't understand a word they're saying and it's not that they're doing it wrong it's just the collo colloquialisms in the, the local dialect uh, and so. that's uh I love the movie Hot Fuzz, and that's one of the things that you see in there is when he comes from London, and they go out to talk to farmers and their mums, and suddenly he has his translator who talks to a different, and it's it's all British English, right? But it's there's the farmer who says rah 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 rah, and then they have the guy from the police force who says, oh, rah, 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 rah. Right. And then you finally have the other guy who says, oh, he says this. And then the main character's like, oh, okay. So <laughs> you have this chain of communication here. Translations. Um, which, yeah. you know, if you don't know what it's like in a rural area, that's kind of what you need to do is yeah. find out what it's going to be like. Will this person from London understand this? So you've got to put your head in the mind of the character and, and more or less live the life of them, at least kind of temporarily to put your, put your head there. Right, and that's yeah. why, you know, the language and stuff and the expression is what's going to be so different, not the not the motivations. Do you ever put any uh, inside jokes in your stories where you very intensely know the reader is not going to get this and I don't necessarily want them to? It's purely for your own inter entertainment? Generally not. There's actually this awesome thing I recommend everybody look up called uh, the Turkey City Lexicon. And... Doing something like that, I believe their term for it is the squid on the mantle, because it's this inside joke that nobody is going to get, and sometimes you're forcing it to go in there. And if you've forced it in, people are going to feel like they should get something, and then they don't, and so you're going to disappoint them. Yeah. Uh, so it's one thing if there's a way for them to understand that joke, like if you are willing to set it up, but if you can't set it up naturally, if it's not organic to the story, there's there's a great saying that I learned the first time I went to a professional critique group, which is kill your darlings. Uh -huh. um, I had a scene I loved in my story. It was so awesome. It was so amazing. And everyone said, no, this, it's a great it. it's scene. Go. It does not belong here. I cut it out. And that was the story that Revolution SF picked up after I did that. Wow. Okay. So that taught me, <laughs> you know, you're going to you're going to have to think about your audience. Maybe not on that first draft, uh -huh. um, but when you start going through it, you don't want to alienate them and make them think that you're throwing stuff at them that they don't understand. Yeah, the inside jokes or inside uh, references. The thing that comes to mind for me there uh, is the Harry Potter stories where she has, uh, J.K. Rowling has you know, a lot of her uh, character names and place names are puns, like uh, Sirius Black is Black Dog. Yeah. Right, and of course, it's a, part of his character is a black dog, and mm -hmm. and the Harry Potter is filled with those just weird wordplay and 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 clever dual meanings and all of that. But those aren't really inside jokes. True, they're more true. they're meant to be figured out by the yes, audience. Yes, yes. Um, that's more of like the you can be clever. Like uh, I just watched Get Out with one of my friends, and there are so many little things in there that might be hard for someone to get, but. You'll, you'll, like, there's the one scene where he's, he's picking at the chair, and he, and I don't want to ruin it for anybody, but he's picking at this chair, and someone pointed out to me after I watched it that he's picking cotton. 
I went, oh my God, I can't believe I missed it. <laughs> but that was, you know, that was, it wasn't necessarily an inside joke. It wasn't something for the writer in, you Just know, a it, subtle was, thing in there it was for the audience yeah. to pick up on. So we talked a little bit about character development, and you you said you sometimes do a uh, mix of what, a pantser and what and was your plotter. other and a plotter. <laughs> so how how would that go for? Can you play both extre- extremes there? How how what is the process for someone who's a plotter, and how you know how much time do you spend on an outline before you even flush any of it out, and then the other end as well? How do you do the the pantser method? Uh, and a really, so for some people, it depends how much time they're spending on it. Um, if you're a pantser, I think you're going to be much more likely to not spend. as Because with the outline, there's all different levels you can go to. Um, one author that I know, she had one of the best chapters ever when she made her outline, and it said, they travel by boat. That was the chapter. That was the entire note she had for it. So, you know, um, it could be... How do you stress that out for 30 pages, right? Right. It's like, uh, I have no idea what I meant to do here. Um, But then other people I know will seriously sit down and write almost mini chapters um, and then go through. And that can work really well if you're doing something that might be more complex. Um, If you're doing something like an epic fantasy where you're talking about writing 400 pages... Uh, that can help you remember all of the little things that you might otherwise forget. And by doing that, it's easier to be able to go back and say, okay, this comes up later. Where can I sow the seeds for that? I'm reminded once again of J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter that she had most of those books, if not all of them, laid out at least in rough form before the first one was published. And it's kind of amazing that you can read something in book one and it's a small little one-sentence thing, and then somehow in book seven it all ties together and it becomes very important. And it, it, that tells you that she had all of this laid out, at least in her head, ahead of time. Either that or she went back and figured it out later. Well, that, Which, that could have know, been too, that, yeah. That happens. Um, yeah. I was at, actually, I think it was at a local convention here in Houston, and there was a panel, and one of the writers was bringing up the fact that uh, they included... And, like, every time they could, they had, like, a hawk with a red cap. And this just kept appearing in the book. And it had absolutely no meaning. But they wanted <laughs> they wanted to put it in there because they're like, well, just in case I want to use this later, it's in here already. Oh, there's hooks so, in there. Yeah, so it was, it was just meant to be there. But, like, with mysteries, you know, in order to be able to have those all those red herrings, having that, that plotted out and saying, I know who the murderer is, because hopefully you would know that uh, when you start writing, then you can go back and give the hints, and also, like I said, the red herring, so that people people will follow you the way you want them to. I see. Okay. That makes sense. You just put hooks in there kind of to mislead them and kind of keep it interesting, and they're always guessing, and then... Right, but you might not know until the end where you need to put those hints, so... I see. Okay. The outline is really good. <laughs> yeah. So we've talked, I think, most of this talk about uh, writing your own books for your own purposes, but uh, spend a few minutes talking about the process of being a ghostwriter. How does that work? <laughs> um, I have only ghostwritten shorter things, not full books, uh, but I do. <laughs> I th- And this is one of the things I recommend for everyone. Find yourself writers to be friends with and then become friends with their friends. And then, yeah, it's, it's the networking thing. Uh, and so that's... I. I <laughs> I have a local writer, who I will not name, uh, who wrote a series of books for a weatherman. And it's a mystery series of books. And, you know, what often happens is your name generally does not appear on them unless you're a draw for whatever reason. And you write the book, someone else gets credit for it, and you walk away with your money in your pocket. Um, do, do the ghostwriters, <laughs> uh, certainly they're not getting the name recognition on the cover, uh, is that purely a money thing? Are they doing it entirely for the money? Is there still some satisfaction of the creativity, even though there's no credit for it? How does how does that mindset work? For that? Um, personally, I, I'm 100% behind it. I would love to <laughs> go straight a book uh, because I am a complete mercenary, which I think a lot of writers are. Um, we love it, but something has to pay the bills. Yeah. Um, and so there is definitely a mercenary edge to it, no question. But it is. It's a chance to be creative in someone else's sandbox. So, you know, uh, generally that's frowned upon going into someone else's world and writing about it. You can do it in fan fiction, but you can't publish it because it's not yours. Got it, okay. Um, yeah, there's there's these things called copyright where <laughs> people get it? upset <laughs> if you steal their ideas. Yeah. Uh, but so with ghostwriting, a lot of the times, yeah, um, you're going to be told, we want this, and sometimes you will be handed a plot and sometimes you won't. Um, 
and you know your job is to try to go ahead and uh, to create that book the way that someone else wants it to be. So what would you guess, and maybe it is nothing more than a guess, uh, all the celebrities, either sports stars or actors or whatever that have books out, uh, are 90% of those ghostwritten or half of them or 10%? What is your best guess? And it's purely <laughs> off the record, uh, totally wild guess here. I, I honestly would say <laughs> I, I, well more than half for sure. Um, but a lot of the times there's there's that, that kind of borderline where is, is it ghostwritten or does it have someone assisting? Like a lot yeah. of the times you'll see, uh, especially with really big authors like uh, Janet Ivanovich, you'll see a lot of books with her and another person's name on them. So the question is, who wrote most of the book there? Uh, I have my own suspicions that perhaps sure. the big name is not the one who did all the hard work. She probably did contribute in a significant way, but I think the other writer is the one who, who produced most of the work. Yeah, I've got, you know, on occasion you'll hear of a, I don't know, pick a movie star, someone, I don't know, Brad Pitt or something, uh, who's got four movies out this year, they're involved in three different charities, and then all of a sudden there's a book coming out. And you know there is <laughs> no chance in hell that that person is able to spend the time to write a book in the traditional sense that you and I would have to. Uh, but I think a yeah. lot of the times in, in cases like that, what you're getting is they're going to dictate a lot of work. Uh -huh. um, and you know, it, it depends on how invested they are in it, how much they're going to be part of the process. Um, like I, I really like stuff like that. I'm sure there is so much dictation as to, you know, here's what I did at this time. And then the writer probably spends a lot of time doing the research, like, okay, he went to this school. And so you have to pull it, because, you, you know, I mean, I don't remember much about my elementary school. I could tell you where it is, uh, and that I had this great teacher, but I don't remember her name. So the writer's job would be <laughs> to go okay. fill in all these things, because if it's, if it's nonfiction like that, those facts will be out there. So you've got to research a ton, and more so than you normally would, because it is a world that is probably totally foreign to you, <laughs> as opposed to just not remembering it. It's, there was nothing to remember. It's totally, totally foreign. Well, but you'll have, hopefully whoever was, was providing the, the outline there is going to be able to say, you know, I went to the school and I had a favorite teacher in second grade. Well, there are school records, so you can go find out who that teacher was. And if they said, I was friends with this kid named Jack, you know, there's records. You can go pull them. Um, but, yeah, clearly, you know, and then maybe you can contact Jack. and you can you but get, yeah, some, get some information that way. Here's a random out of the uh, blue question. Is there a book written by some other author uh, that you wish you would have written? Is there, a, is there a book like, man, that's such a great idea. Why didn't I think of that? Or I wish I would have thought of that. <laughs> there are so many of those. Uh, <laughs> I will say, and I, I will have to tell him when this podcast airs, um, there is this awesome writer who wrote a series of books. Um, and I'm like, uh, of course, the name is completely lost to me right now because it was, it was a series of three. And it's uh, about a... I'm like, oh, can we pause this and I'll look it up real quick? Because I'm like, I'm going to give the wrong name. The best part of it. Tell you what, let's, let's do pause right here because yes. we'll, we'll insert a commercial uh, as well. And we'll come right back to it. Let's break out of the program here for a few seconds to give a shout out to our sponsor, Puzzometry, the hardest puzzle you'll never solve. If you love working on challenging, unique, and beautiful mechanical puzzles, then you've just got to try Puzzometry. P-U-Z-Z-O-M-E-T-R-Y, Puzzometry.com. They have three different puzzles to choose from, and all are for sale at Puzzometry.com. Check it out. You'll be glad that you did. Puzzometry can also be found on Twitter and Facebook. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Loom Innovation Podcast, where we shine a light on innovation. Before we get back to the program, I want to let you know that you can find all of the episodes of the Luminovation podcast on our website at luminovation.com. That's L-U-M innovation.com, luminovation.com. We're also on iTunes as well as soundcloud.com. And now back to the program. Here is more from Kate Sanger. Back to the Luminovation podcast. Here we're here with uh, Kate Sanger, and she has now thought of <laughs> the author and the book. 
So the author is Jonathan Wood, which I could remember, uh, but it's actually a series of books that all are based on hero. So No Hero is one of them, um, and then there's there's like three others I want to say, and they're about as uh, Arthur Wallace, who one of the reasons that I absolutely love him is what he does when he faces trouble is say, what would Kurt Russell do? And he inhabits a very Lovecraftian world with all sorts of aliens and, you know, uh, just weird out of this world evils that he has to deal with. And he, he starts out as a detective and then winds up involved in this secret government agency who fights. And uh, it's just, it is an amazing series that there is magic, there is science, there is Lovecraftian evil. It's just everything that I love pulled into one book. So how, do, how does someone do that? You know, I, I can imagine if you're kind of your, your mind is wired to do fiction or nonfiction or fantasy, uh, I can imagine it's a, a triple challenge to try to somehow master all of those genres and merge them into one book. Is that a bad idea, a good idea usually? Is it, how, does, um, how can that work? I actually, it's a good idea if that's what you like to read. Uh, one of the reasons, we always, people really like to put things in categories. <laughs> yep. I like to read romance. Well, but but libraries like and bookstores do as well, right? So you, you've got to find a way to go back to marketing. You've got to find a way to put that into the right shelf to make it findable. Uh, generally, who, whatever, whatever either agent or um, publishing agency that you go with, they're the ones who are going to help decide where it goes. They're going to say, this will sell best as X, Y, or Z. Um, your job is to write it and write it well enough that people want to read it. Because uh, it's very rare to find a book that does not have multiple elements in it. If you read a mystery, there might very well be some horror. It might be more of a chiller than just a straight mystery. It will almost likely have romance. Romance appears in pretty much every book you read. Yeah. Um, you know, like I was saying, the, the motivation. Love is a huge motivation. So people do very stupid things for love. <laughs> you'd, you'd mentioned a, a little while ago about uh, being stalled down in Galveston, uh, looking at the tall ship Alyssa, and, and an idea came to you and you started writing. Give me another example, or or does that happen commonly where you just, you're just you wandering through your day just doing normal everyday things, and, and bam, just like popcorn, something explodes in your mind, and you've got this idea maybe even fully formed. Does, does that occur? Is that a common thing? I'd love it if it was fully formed. It normally is not. Um, I, I will, hopefully people don't know what I look like because if they did, they would never sit near me at Starbucks because, <laughs> or at a restaurant because I'm constantly listening to things people say and figuring out how to twist it out of context. I um, see, to make it a neat To story. make it unique, yeah, yeah, because, you know, a lot of people are going to have the same problems and you want, you want a core problem that people can identify with. Okay. Um, like, <laughs> to go back to the necromancer issue, so many people are trying out these boxes. You know, you can buy boxes for toys. You can buy boxes for food. You can buy boxes for, uh, there was one I love that it has pens and notebooks. And these are the subscription-based um, things, like for for meals and the, even the razor shave club yeah. things, all of those things. So, so there's just so many of those. Okay. And so people, they get them, and you'll see tons of reviews of them appear. You know, people, should I get this or not? And, you know. Yeah. I'm but sure some of the reviews are paid. <laughs> but so, you know, that's something that you see in everyday life. Yeah. And so your job as the writer, in my opinion, is to find that and say, where can I go with it? So just like, yeah, going through your everyday life, uh, catch a snippet of a conversation and not knowing where it came from, um, seeing a billboard and misreading it. That's actually a great way to... <laughs> totally taking it out of context, doing something else with it. Yeah. Um, How many of your stories are, in one way or another, inspired by people you know, friends, or perhaps even enemies, versus how many <laughs> how many stories are just completely, totally dreamed up? Um, I'd say less of them are inspired by people I know. I will often use people I know, uh, but most of them like that. Like, at one point, I was like, I need someone killed by a shark. And my friend was like, I'll be killed by I'll a shark. It. And I'm like, wonderful, you're now dead. And so, you know, because you're, sometimes you're like, I don't know who should die. And, you know, like, you have the idea, but the character is still. So sometimes things like that can help. Do you ever um, secretively <laughs> do it, uh, base a character on someone you know and they don't know and you very much are not going to tell them that they're the base of the character? Yes, and so if my sister hears this, then she will now know. Uh, I have a, a collection of short stories that are Cthulhu-based, very Lovecraftian, uh -huh. um, that I, I wrote as part of my, actually it was my thesis in my Master's of Fine Arts and Creative Writing. And there is a character in there um, 
who is meant to be my sister. She is a yoga instructor who dies horribly. Wow. <laughs> Everybody dies horribly. It's Cthulhu. He has to, you know. Okay. Um, but she had no idea before, you know, hearing this, that, uh, <laughs> assuming she hears it, that that was her. Um, the character is not like her in some ways. Like, it doesn't look like her. It doesn't... But, like, the things that the character says and the way the character does things is, is pretty well You're stolen from You're pulling off things her. that are yeah, familiar completely. to you. completely. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Uh, let's go back. We, we started this with uh, how to become a better writer, and, and it occurred to me that we skipped over a few things uh, that a very common, and it's growing more common in the last few years, are the nano uh, contests. Talk a little bit about what nano is and, and the National Writers Month and all of that kind of good stuff. I love NaNoWriMo. Um, uh, if you define that first, because our audience yeah, oh. probably doesn't know what that is. Well, yes, to go into it. So NaNoWriMo is National Novel Writing Month. Um, November. It, yeah, it is the month of November, uh, and which of course you have kind of a whammy there because it's short, and you have Thanksgiving. But the idea is to spend 30 days writing a 50,000 word book. Uh, 50,000 words, by the way, is on the short side of books. If you're if you're looking to like figure out what kind of lengths to write, what's really popular or and getting popular uh, is novellas, which are thirty to fifty thousand words. So remind, I guess I don't have a good correlation in my mind of how many pages is fifty thousand words. Do you, uh, it's two hundred and fifty words per page. So if you can do okay. the math, because I can't, <laughs> uh, but that's 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 the general accepted. That's two hundred pages. Um, I did that quick. I, I typed it in on my little calculator and. Brilliant. Good to go. yeah. So it's it's about two hundred pages. Yes, there you okay. go. Okay, so that that's uh that's a, a short Barnes and Noble book. I mean, just go randomly yeah. pick a book off off the shelf and okay. Most and of them so will be longer than that, but that it really is right now, especially with e-publishing. Um, novellas are getting very popular. So to to do one of those uh, in thirty days, and assuming you're able to spend every day doing this, and it, that's probably not practical for everyone, but maybe you could spend twenty to twenty five days if you're really putting it in. Uh, that's ten to twenty pages a day. Yep, sixteen hundred and sixty-three words, I think it is. Yeah, so that, that's hard to do. How do you <laughs> how do you do that? How how does that process go? Do you just just say like from five to six p.m. No one bother me. I'm locking the doors and leave me alone. How, do, actually, how do you do that? Yeah, it is a great way, and the reason I love it, um, and I've done it twice. Woo! Um, but the <laughs> maybe it was three times. Yes, three times. Okay. Like, I'm thinking of the books that I have on my shelf that I, I printed them out because, you know, you're all proud of them. But, again, they have never seen the light of day either. Uh, <laughs> because they're, they're, the idea behind NaNoWriMo is not necessarily to get it published. It's to get it done. Um, it goes back to the so many people do the, I want to write a book someday. Yeah. Well, NaNoWriMo says, write that book. And it, on, on those kind of deals, from what I understand, the quality of what you're doing is almost secondary to the fact of getting it done. Yeah, and that's I, I actually had a note here. The the most important thing I can tell people is you can't fix it if you don't write it. That's true. Um, yeah. If there is nothing yeah. on that page, you cannot edit it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you cannot tell someone you wrote a book and have an empty. And so, file. The, so the, the I guess the mindset for someone who wants to do that in November is going to be here before you know it. So the time whoever is doing this is listening to it, give them a few months to kind of warm up to the idea, but. The, the idea is it doesn't matter how good you are. You don't have to be a Stephen King. You don't have to be a J.K. Rowling. Just go write something. Just g get her done, right? Yeah, that's a, such a Texas thing to say, get her done. Yeah. But that, that is what it is. And uh, what's really great about the process, too, is that a lot of the times, and I, I am very <laughs> guilty of this, we all are very good at being too busy to do things. Yeah. Or too tired. Yeah, it was a really long day. I really just can't sit in front of my computer for another hour. So, the, so the, a lot of the websites that are, uh, there's one specifically for the National uh, Writers, remind me of the acronym. National uh, Writer, uh, National Novel Writer Month. Yeah, so and if you acronymize that with a few extra letters in that, you can find the website for that. But, yes. but many of the websites uh, that are uh, devoted to that have deals you can log in, you can keep track of your progress, you can kind of do a little social media aspect there, keep in track with your friends. Uh, and it serves as a little, little bit of a motivation where you're not just in a closet by yourself doing this for 30 days. Yeah, and you really can. You can you, there's also pretty much everywhere we'll have local meetups that are listed on the NaNoWriMo website uh, and also sometimes on meetup.org or .com or whatever that meetup site is. Okay. Um, and you can join them and go sit in libraries, for example, uh, coffee shops. Um, sometimes they use like even Cafe Express seems to be a really popular one because it's food, drink, and space. So that's an excellent um, way for someone who's brand new. Um, so 
October 31st, you've never even thought about writing a book, and November 1, dig in. You start it, yeah. Just and it, it does, like I said, for me, one of the most important parts of it is it forces you to get over the I don't have time because you have to learn how to make that time. Um, when I was working a full-time job, now I work part-time from home, but when I was younger and working a full-time job, I would use lunch hour. You don't really want to do that. You know, you don't want to be at your computer for another hour in the middle of the day, or a half hour, depending on where you're lucky enough to work. Um, but that is a great time to do it. You know, you can turn off your phone because you're not there uh, and sit in front of your computer and hopefully no one will bother you. And if they do, just be like, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm at lunch. Um, at home, I actually went to the dollar store and bought an open and closed sign. Oh, and I keep idea. it on my computer, so if my husband or son walks in and it says closed, they well, should not talk to me unless leave, it's really important. Leave me alone, I'm writing. Um, which there's a great rule for any parents out there to get your kids to leave you alone while you're writing. The rule is the three Bs. They can bother you if there's blood, broken bones, or barf. <laughs> Everything else you don't need to worry about and, while you're writing. And Barf, you can clean up yourself. Leave me out of it. Exactly. <laughs> right. but, you know, it's a great rule. Like, does someone need to ask me a question? Does it fit one of those categories? If not, then you'll survive on your own. Very good. <laughs> uh, is there anything we're leaving out here on the process of writing a book? We, um, we're going to spend a little bit of time here, I think, so in a minute, uh, uh, which I think will be another episode because we're getting up right our, our time limit. We'll spend a little bit of time talking about the actual act of publishing a book. Is there anything more you want to, uh, to touch on here on the process of writing a book? Um, like so many things. Uh, going back to, I'd probably say one of the things with the you can't fix it if you don't write it. One of the really important things that you need to learn, even if you think you are the best writer in the world, you have to give yourself permission to suck on the page. Got it. Oh, that makes <laughs> because sense. Because it's yeah. really, you know, it's it's just like anything else. Even if you're not a perfectionist, you're going to hit that procrastination because you have this awesome idea in your head normally. And you want everyone to know this idea. And then you write it down. And what in your mind was this great flowing scene and it was gorgeous and there was this awesome dialogue and then you write it down and it's like he walked into a room. It was dark. You're like, that is not what I meant to put on that page. But get her down, and then you can come back and yeah, revise later. So it that's can suck as much as it has to suck. Um, but the, so the, the, I guess the overall thesis here is just just go right and either... Don't be afraid of it. Yeah, <laughs> and either that, that product lives or dies down the road, but you can maybe fix it later, but, but get it done, get to the finish line. Yep. Very good. Uh, let's uh, let's wrap up here real quick, but uh, before we do, I always like to end each episode with what we call the Illuminate segment. It's a chance for you to shine a light on a piece of art, a book, a poem, an artist, a charity, any any sort of enterprise that kind of fits in your, your realm. Do you have any anything you want to uh, kind of advertise here to let spread the word about? Uh, <laughs> I should have been more prepared for that. I thought it was just going to be uh, an idea. Okay, so I, that's I fine. I prepared for that. So yeah, what I it. prepared for was imposter syndrome. Okay. Because it is a serious issue with writers. Uh, I teach as my main gig. Okay. And that is a huge part of that, too. So imposter syndrome is when you think everybody else knows more than you do. Oh, which I see. most of us have happened to us at yes. least one point in time. And I was saying before the show started, you know, it's terrifying as a teacher to walk in front of a class because you're like, I'm faking this whole thing. I know nothing. Someone in my audience will correct me and I'll look like an idiot. Um, and it will stop you from doing things. It will stop you, let's say you finish that book and you want to go to your local library and talk. You will stop yourself from doing it because you'll be convinced you're not that good. It's some version of intimidation that other people it's, are better yeah. than you. But, but, it, but you know, who, who cares? Just do that's, it anyway, and right? That's what it is. is yeah. you know, chances are people will listen to you and you're not going to be outed. <laughs> you're not an imposter. If you've gotten to that point, You've already done stuff people haven't. Very good. Okay, so. I'm going to do uh, <laughs> I'm going to do the illuminate segment for myself here. And since we are in the Helen Hall Library, and libraries are kind of a thing of the past, it seems, but they should not be. So I'm going to illuminate libraries. Go to one. They're still relevant, uh, even though we're usually getting much of our reading material from either eBooks or or not reading as much as we used to. Go to your libraries. They're still relevant. They're still big parts of the community. There, there's still lots, uh, lots to be gained by going to libraries, and they and they've modernized too. There's, uh, you'd be surprised. Go to your local library, and we're here at the Helen Hall Library in League City, Texas. 
How do we uh, contact you, Kate, for a future reference? If someone uh, likes what they hear here and they want to come and, and get in touch with you and learn more, how do we do that with Twitter, Facebook? Uh, I'm easy to find on Facebook. I, uh, I think I am one of two Catherine Sangers, okay. but generally you will know it as me because there will either be a picture of a blonde teenage boy, which is my son, or there will be a picture of me with potential curse words everywhere around it. Uh, <laughs> so that is a good way to know it's me if there's a lot of cursing. Chances are you're going to find me. I'm on Twitter at Katherine Sanger. So that's another great way to find me. Um, those are probably the best ways to, to connect. <laughs> Very good. Well, thank you, Catherine, for being a part of this. And uh, thank you, listeners, for being a part of the uh, Luminovation podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time. I'm Jim Fox, and thank you for listening to the Luminovation Podcast, where we shine a light on innovation, creativity, entrepreneurship, and the creative people who make our world a better and more interesting place to live. If you have a suggestion for what you would like to hear on a future Luminovation Podcast episode, please reach out to us at Twitter and Facebook. <laughs>